0: Welcome to EvaluLand, a podcast about the land of evaluation between you and me, your host, Dana Linnell Wanzer. This is the show where we interview people about any and all things evaluation related. So this week, we're having David Kais on the podcast to talk about how he got into evaluation, about R. We're going to really nerd out about R and talk about the course that we're developing together on inferential statistics for R. So David, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Dana. I appreciate you having me on.
0: Yeah, thank you. Before we get into uh, the fun topic of R, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you got into evaluation and what you currently do?
1: Sure. Um, I'll start with what I currently do, um, which is I run R for the Rest of Us, which um, is my business. I uh, teach R. I have online courses. I do training for organizations. I did workshops in, uh, in pre-COVID times. Um, and I also do some consulting work mainly focused on data visualization and kind of um, process improvement, which I can talk about a little later. Um, And yeah, so that's what I I do now. Um, I came to that, as you mentioned, through the world of evaluation, um, which I got into um, after leaving academia. I did a a PhD in anthropology and was looking for something that was um, more applied. And um, evaluation seemed like a great application of my my kind of general social science skills. Um, So I worked uh, in a foundation here in Portland where I'm located, the Oregon Community Foundation, uh, and then worked as a, a consultant doing evaluation work for a couple of years uh, before really starting to focus full-time on, um, on my R work.
0: And so with your R work, you're still working with a lot of evaluation clients and consultants and programs that are, from what I gather, a lot of the things that you're doing is helping them do their evaluation work through R.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I you know R for the rest of us obviously anybody can sign up for courses or you know hire me if you want to do that but i definitely kind of focus mostly on folks in evaluation because i'm familiar with it and you know because i'm familiar with it i i know that there's a lot of value specifically for folks in evaluation and using r um so i do a range of things i mean like right before we got on uh, this call i was working on uh, developing a report for some folks in Connecticut, um, looking at housing-related data throughout the state. So making a bunch of data visualizations, um, which is fun. I enjoy that. And R is really great for that. But also um, one thing I'm doing with R that I don't think you could really do with other tools is um, this project actually requires one report for each of the 170-ish towns in the state of Connecticut. Um, So I have, uh, working with a a partner, um, have written some R code that um, will automate this. So the reports that we've put together will then, uh, or the report kind of template that we've put together, will run the code and it will automatically produce 170 reports, which, as you might imagine, would be a huge time savings over um, doing that manually. So yeah, it's that kind of thing that I that I really um, do a lot with evaluators. And that that's actually a really good example, because, you know, a lot of folks working in evaluation will have, you know, you're doing like an after school program evaluation, you have, you know, dozens of sites that you want to evaluate that you're evaluating, and you want to produce reports for each of them. Well, um, you can do that by hand or if you learn R, uh, which does take some work up front, but if you, if you learn how to do it, then you can automate those kinds of things which are um, you know, make it really efficient in the long term.
0: Right, and I've done those <laughs> breakout reports, one for each site. And the, the, the amount of user error that can be introduced through that process is uh, astronomical. <laughs> and so th- having a process that we can automate it, like I know Excel can do this, in, in some capacity and I've seen like Anne Emery has done done that type of like dashboarding process through Excel that you could turn into a PDF to report but there's something about R and doing it through a coding process that then is reproducible that is just my favorite that's the whole bread and butter of why I like R
1: well and I think I mean I assume you've had the experience where you're doing it by hand where you, you know, you're working on 100 reports you've made 99 of them and then you realize there's an error along the yep. way you have to go back to the beginning and, and do it all over um, with R because you're writing it with code. You just rerun your code and it automatically produces them. So yeah, I don't even necessarily mention the um, kind of you know reduced error upfront as a as a reason to use R, but it's absolutely valid because you just have to you know look at your code in one place, make sure it, it's, it works there and then it'll automatically produce reports and you're never going to have to go back and you know redo all 99 or 100 reports.
0: Exactly. Well, I just I personally am not great with super fine details and so yeah, I I I mess up those those little tiny things and then I'm constantly revising. So, yeah, definitely one of the reasons why I love R. So, I'm wondering how how did you get into R? You come from an anthropology background. I'm I don't I don't know much about anthropology, but I get the sense that they don't do do they do much in the way of statistical analysis and stuff? Like, how did you get into R?
1: Yeah, um, I know it's a, it's not a, uh, a normal, quote unquote, normal path to R. Um, anthropology is the most qualitative of the social sciences. Um, I did not have any formal quantitative training in grad school. Um, I worked on a mixed methods project that had some had a significant quantitative component, but I always worked on. Um, I, I worked with a, a statistician who would do all the work. Who, by the way, I remembered when I started using R was using R back, you know, ten years ago or whatever it was. So I got into R because w- when I was working as a consultant doing evaluation work, the the main client that I was working with didn't care what tools I used. She just wanted me to, you know, do. The analysis do the reports and i was at that time just doing everything in excel which is you know i know is pretty common i wasn't doing any hardcore statistical work i still i still don't do any of that to be honest and i just got frustrated with excel um i don't know how many times you know just like trying to like move the label this way and that way and then um, it just felt like tons of like manual work pointing and clicking i had heard about r um, wanted to learn it. And so um, just taught myself, um, which I don't actually recommend. <laughs> um, obviously, I have a vested interest in saying that I don't recommend that. But, you know, looking back, my, my process for learning was extremely inefficient. And it, it took me a while. And I, I've talked about how I actually went through a process of several months where I would be like, this is the project I'm going to really do in R. You know, i I'm, I'm not going to use Excel at all for this. And then I would get you know, halfway through or something and be like, oh, I can't figure out how to do this. And so I'd have to, you know, go back to Excel, with my tail between my legs. But yeah, eventually I learned. And in particular, it was learning about, um, I know we're not going to go into tons of details, but what's known as the tidyverse, which is kind of one approach to using R and the, the approach that I teach now. And I think is by far the most user-friendly and that enabled me to, uh, to really have it click and, yeah, I just kind of have have gone from there. And I like it because I feel like, I think with Excel, I felt like I was just kind of doing the same thing over and over and over. Um, and with R, I feel like I'm always learning something new. Mm. Not to disparage Excel, I know there are ways you can continue to learn, but I feel like I'm always learning something new now, which I really enjoy.
0: Yeah, I think the tidyverse is also one thing that really was one of the, once I learned that, then I could really get into R. Before I'd been trying to just figure things out and I think the tidyverse just provides like a really good structure for getting started that base are I think it does but just the way the different packages in tidyverse are laid out are just really helpful. I'd also say that I think we're in a heyday of this is the best time to be learning R. Definitely. You know, we learned, you know, last five years or so, the two of us, I'm guessing. um, Mm -hmm. And then people learning a decade or more ago, uh, I don't quite know how anybody did that unless you're just like, I don't, I don't even know. I I don't think I could have ever started in R when it was in the early stages.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's amazing now. Uh, The reason I like the, Tidyverse is, I feel like it's the only approach I've seen to R that's really designed um, with users first. Base R, well, I guess it's Base R is designed for users first, but a very particular type of user, kind of the original, you know, really pretty hardcore quantitative, um, statistically oriented folks um, who have usually have some kind of programming background. Whereas Tidyverse is designed, you know, it's designed to be accessible to newcomers, which doesn't mean it's not valuable for for more experienced folks. I mean, there are some people doing really sophisticated work who use tidyverse, but it's just designed with user friendliness in mind, which especially given our reputation for being a little bit scary, that makes it a ton easier to learn.
0: Yeah, I agree. I also think it's just a bit more efficient, not in terms of maybe computation time I know everybody in you know who's creating packages and stuff like that are always talking about the time it takes well I'm never dealing sure. with that big of data sets in the first place but right. But efficiency of what the code looks like and how clean it looks yeah. I, I, I it's just funny working with people who are using base R or are still learning things and I, the other day I took somebody's like 150 lines of code and broke it down into two lines of code like, that's all mm-hmm. they needed, um, but right. they didn't know the structure of the tidyverse enough to be able to, to pare it down so quickly. And you can imagine, typing out two lines of code is a lot quicker than 100 lines of code.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, definitely. Well, and the other thing I find with the tidyverse, I mean, this is probably just what you were saying, is whenever I think, hot, huh, you know, I wonder if I can do x in in r there's almost always a function already written and so i don't have to you know reinvent the wheel i can you know just search for something and you know knowing the various tidyverse packages and what they do i can usually kind of pinpoint okay it's likely to be in this package or that package and there's almost always exactly what i need which is really valuable
0: Right. And thinking of the heyday, like there are just packages on packages being developed every single day that do every little thing that we want to be able to do. Yep. Right. Like there's a package that will beat for you when you've got your program done running. Right. Oh, you that all just the time. It, right. <laughs> beeper. Beeper. <laughs> yeah. My friend was sharing that there was a, I don't remember the name of the package. So when I figure it out, I'll put in the show notes, but it'll give you like an affirmational message. So it's uh-huh. like a nice way to start your coding days. Like give me a little affirmational message. Okay. I feel good. Let's start coding.
1: Yeah, I'm curious if um, you have particular packages that you've come across that are like your your kind of favorites in terms. Well, I guess you've mentioned a couple. I'm curious if there are any others that are kind of your favorites in terms of like usefulness for your work.
0: Um, I think. My, I mean, it's going to be the same as yours. Tidyverse and janitor, right? Mm. I know you're a big fan of janitor as well. And the janitor for, um, I don't use it so much for cleaning names. I usually have a pretty good um, naming convention for my variables in the first place. But for the table function, just the basic little table for... Uh, Chi-square frequency tables. I use that all the time that and all the tidyverse stuff. So beyond that, it's usually because I'm getting into my really stats heavy stuff. So like LeVon for my structural equation models, um, Mm -hmm. and factor analyses. I use the psych package a little bit, but that's because I'm in the psych background. So that makes sense. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I'm I'd love to get more into the tables fun, uh packages. I know like GT summary and uh, GT itself, and uh, there's others that I know there's a lot out there, and I haven't quite explored them yet because I usually just kind of manually create my tables and then fix them up in Word. So that's I think that's the next step because I know there's some powerful table functions out there, and I'm I'm guessing that's actually probably. Of most use for the people in in evaluation is learning how to create tables in R is probably what ninety five percent of our job is. <laughs>
1: um, yeah. So with, I mean, with tables, I actually have a blog post that um, is actually far and away my most popular the most popular content on my website um, about different packages to make tables, and there are a ton out there. Actually, in our studio. I don't know if you saw this. Our studio, which is a company, as well as a, a product that um, people use for coding in R, um, is running a contest right now on uh, making tables. So it'll be interesting to see what people come up with. But yeah, I mean, I was just working with a client the other day in Michigan, working with them to develop a function. So you can kind of write your own functions, which in this case, what the function does is it takes any output that they have and then formats it into a table, you know, using their colors, using their fonts and everything. So now they can just add at the end of any code the name of their function and it'll make their tables all look exactly the same, which is really cool. Uh,
0: yeah, I I keep mentioning to you, I still need to learn how to do functions. I know I know the gist of it, but I haven't like gotten to the point where I'm actually doing functions on a regular basis. Uh, that sounds awesome because then I could I can imagine like you know, any evaluator is going to have either their own branding style or needs to learn how to adapt the table and the formatting and everything to their company's branding style. What other, what other things do you think would be useful for evaluators interested in getting to know R? So we've got tables, we've got, obviously it does inferential statistics and descriptive statistics. Uh, it can do reports and stuff. What What else do you think would be most useful?
1: One thing that I've ended up doing a lot of, I mean, I focus a lot on data visualization, so this makes sense, but I should do a ton of mapping uh, with R, which is not something I, ha- I-, I knew at all was even possible with R when I-, when I first started out. So, I mean, just as an example, I'm working with, um, it's called Prosper Portland, it's the um, local kind of small business development agency here in Portland. And they actually just opened up a an application for businesses that are affected by COVID, a, a grant program. And so just as an example, like I get all of the data that, you know, from the, I think it's been like 3,000 something applications so far. And then I can like plot it for them on a map of the city of Portland so they can see because they have, for example, um, kind of like target areas that they want to, you know, make sure that they're supporting. And so... know I can help them to to do that. I can also, for example, geocode the addresses using R. And then they gave me a they gave me shapefiles that show their kind of like target areas. And I can tell them which of the businesses based on their address are within the target areas, which is super cool. So I do a lot of that. The other interesting thing that I I actually am doing this for Prosper Portland as well. This application, the applications come in in five languages: English, Spanish, uh, Chinese, Vietnamese, and Russian. So, one of the most of the questions are, you know, closed response, and those we can just fairly straightforwardly translate into English. But then there are a bunch of open-ended responses. Well, what do you do with those? And you know I think about evaluators who are doing evaluations where you're working with multilingual populations. I am actually using a package for automatically translating text. So it uses the Google Translate API. So in other words, the same thing if you go to Google Translate and type in you know how are you and, and translate the Spanish and it spits back almost us. Um, same thing, but you can run it on uh, using R. So I'll basically gather up all the responses that are in other languages, do the translations and then, you know, return that to them. So they have those, you know, and I can get that to them in minutes. Whereas, you know, doing it with a trans- an actual translator would, I mean, it would obviously be a, probably a little bit higher quality, but it'd be a lot more expensive and it would take a lot longer. So yeah, that's, that's something that I last night actually was doing. and was thinking about, oh man, I can imagine evaluators using this as well.
0: Right. And you bring up another point, like the automated reporting that we can do in R is one of another thing, another thing that evaluators might find really useful. I was working with um, a a previous person uh, working as their evaluation consultant for their evaluation firm. And we... When we figured out how to do automated reporting, I remember he was like, oh, we can't tell them how quick we can actually do this. Tell them we can do this in like a 48-hour turnaround. That'll get them really excited, but also give us a little bit of space and not make them like start expecting everything in that quick quick turnaround. Because really we could, we could literally have them collect all the data and get a report out minutes later.
1: Yep. Yeah, definitely. um, I've done that kind of thing. I actually set it up. Um, it's actually for the same Prosper Portland for a previous grant program they had, where their application data was going into a Google Sheet, and I wrote some code so that it would automatically every morning at like seven a.m. go in, download all the applications, create a summary report of you know how many applications came in, different things about them, and then like and then emailed it um, to them. So when they got to their desk that morning, they had a report. Oh. Um, it was. Yeah, I mean, can you, can you imagine like doing that kind of thing within, you know, evaluation? I mean, obviously, you don't always have, you don't need to do it like every day. But it, you know, I know a big part of the push in evaluation, and I'll say this as someone who's not totally immersed in evaluation, so please correct me if I'm wrong. But I know there's a, I think there's a big push in evaluation to, you know, get away from the kind of giant summative reporting at the end, and you know, move to kind of more um, ongoing reporting you know, quick turnaround, that kind of thing to help inform practice along the way. And I think, you know, this like R can be a great tool for helping you to do that.
0: Agreed. Yeah, I I definitely I do see that trend as well, that we're moving away from the end of evaluation report and much more ongoing reporting uh, to the point where I usually have at least monthly check ins. And then I try to get I try to get uh, reports by the end of each major, like, data collection strategy right like okay the surveys are done i'm going to get you a survey report just so you don't have Mm -hmm. to wait until like the triangulated report at the very end sure yeah exactly do you know is are there any packages because i know a lot of evaluators are doing qualitative data analysis and qualitative data analysis software can also get quite expensive yeah are there any packages that help us with that
1: so there was one that was being developed called QCoder. I'm actually looking at it right now. I feel like that kind of stalled. Let's see. The, I'm looking on GitHub, which is kind of where you can see like the public history of, of how it's developed. It looks like there was well, there was an update in the summer. So maybe that that's intended to be kind of like a lightweight in um, vivo or Atlas Ti kind of replacement, where you kind of do do manual coding and then you can get some you know, summaries and it's been a while since I looked at it. So I probably wouldn't do it justice by trying to explain exactly what it does. There are also approaches that are more automated, which, you know, a lot of our users are coming, they're data scientists who work in tech. So they're doing things like, you know, they have like thousands and thousands of customer surveys, say like huge amounts of data, there's just no way you're going to go through and code that by hand. Um, so there are packages written to automate that. Right. I'll say I don't think for most evaluation work that's super useful. It'll do things like what's called sentiment analysis, which it'll basically say like, is this a positive or a negative um, overall sentiment in this, you know, this paragraph or whatever, maybe sentence. I don't. I've never actually done it. That's not super helpful generally for at least the evaluation work that I've done. But there might be times when that would be useful. So that's all I know. I mean, do you, have you heard of anything?
0: I I don't know if... Uh, I feel like I heard something on Twitter that there was one that just went... It got off to GitHub for some reason, um, which I guess that's... You know, we could talk about that briefly or just mention it, that one of the detac- detractions of using R is that... You know, people, everyday people are creating these packages and they may stop maintaining those packages and updating those packages and supporting those packages in the future. And I, I've I've had that experience a couple times where it's like, oh, this is really great, but then it's two years old and it doesn't look mm-hmm. like the, the maintainer is doing anything with it anymore, which is... A little, it sucks a little bit. I don't know to what extent people can th- take that and run it as a new package or, or something or take over it without permission. I don't know, just because everything's open source, but...
1: Right. That's actually another reason why I, why I um, promote folks use Tidyverse is because you know that's going to be around. It's supported by our studio, the company. Most of the people who work on the Tidyverse come from that. You, you just know it's going to stick around. I actually wrote a blog post about kind of how to evaluate packages. And I talked right, about yeah. like, is this package designed to be user-friendly? Is there an organization behind it? So like our studio, for example, also looking at the documentation quality, um, like seeing kind of what's written to explain it, I think is, it shows, like if someone writes really clear instructions for how to use it, it's a pretty good indication that they're likely to stick around. So yeah, it's it can be disappointing like i've had high hopes for this q coder but i just haven't heard anything about it for a while so yeah it can be disappointing if a package you're into seems to stall but you know sort of the nature of open source things come like tons of things come but then also things go away so
0: right which hopefully the things that stick around are things that get higher and higher quality at least so
1: exactly exactly
0: so you provided some questions at the bottom for me but i'm going to ask you one to yourself first so how do you respond to somebody who says some version of learning R is hard? I'd rather just stick with my current tools.
1: Yeah. So first of all, I actually try intentionally not to be that person who's like, well, if you don't use R you're this or that. Like, I, I really don't like that attitude. Um, First thing I say is like, if if your current tools are working for you, like don't switch there, you know, there's no need. I think there are, the main reason I would say you should consider learning R is that there are things that you can do with R that you can't do with your current tools that make your life more efficient in the long run. And it has to be more efficient in the long run because like, it is hard learning upfront. So you know that automated reporting thing that we were talking about and being able to produce 170 reports automatically that's just not something I could ever do with Excel. Um, I don't think it's possible to the degree that you can automate it in R. And so it's not, for me, what's ended up happening is it's not so much that I'm like replacing, you know, one-to-one R or Excel with R. I'm actually doing things now that I never could do before, you know, doing those 170 reports or making maps. I don't know. Maybe you can make maps in Excel these days. I don't, actually no. but like you know i never did any mapping because i don't have a you know license for expensive software but now that i use r i can do all that stuff so i'd say for me i mean it's hard to like convince people of that because they're like well how do i know like i'll be able to do things i can't do but like i don't even know what those are so that you know that can be a bit of a hard sell but i try and just like talk through some examples like i just gave of things that i have come to be able to do that i couldn't
0: before yeah, I, I think I go usually the different route, right? That, yeah, R can do exactly the same things as your current tool, but it can do it a lot better oftentimes, right, in in a way that's going to save you time in the long run in terms of, okay, and I use SPSS because that's my, that's my past tool and what people might feel tip typically use but okay you you're opening up your data in SPSS you are having to clean your data you know create a new filter or sort and it saves this very weirdly in SPSS okay now you run your t-test and you get your output and then you export that to Word and there are ways to make it work a lot better and it does have a syntax feature that can do like 90% of the syntax so you could make it a little bit more automated but most people aren't doing it that way whereas r Mm -hmm. forces you to do it that way and so you're getting into the habits of doing things in a way that's going to save you time in the long run so if you did make a mistake you could just pull it again it also teaches people to just type in their results at the end right because um Sure, you can export it in Word and, and you could make it look somewhat nice, but oftentimes i don 't see people doing that it, it's mm-hmm. like the way SPSS at least the way it runs doesn't promote people using it in a way that 's going to be efficient and time saving in, in the long run. People can do it, but it, most people aren't doing it that way. R forces people to do that that way and just gets people into doing research and evaluation and better habits
1: hmm. Interesting.
0: I'll, I'll tell another story. Um, so I taught um, at my university. We teach using SPSS, or at least we did this year. We're, we're switching to Jamovi, which is um, like our Studio, but it's uh, a different graphical user interface um, that's more point point and click, which is nicer for our students who are, you know, a little hesitant about statistics, maybe um, maybe anxious about it. But at the end of last year, so these are all undergraduate students, mostly juniors and seniors. We had just gone through learned everything in SPSS because that's what our department was using finished SPSS and I planned for the final week to go over R and show how everything we could have done could have been done in R and I walked Mm -hmm. through it and like how R is beneficial and I walked them through the APA package which I guess that's another package I kind of used a lot um, especially for my inferential statistics because it can report all my statistics in APA format and Mm -hmm. when I showed them that they were like kind of mad at me that we didn't go through r in the first place quite <laughs> frankly because because they're like we learned how to do this manually for all month or all you know all semester and you know we were struggling and struggling and struggling and you're telling me i could have just done this line of code and it would have done it for me automatically like they were kind of pissed
1: <laughs> yeah you know that's it's funny because like i actually joke but i i think i should stop saying it's joke because i think it's serious like I think of R at this point as a workflow tool. A workflow tool that also does some statistics. At least for me, the way I use it, it's just had such an incredible impact on my workflow. And obviously, it's all based around you know some kind of statistical analysis. But you know, being able to like take your results and automatically format them using a package like that's that's amazing. That's such a, a huge improvement to your workflow.
0: No, that's exactly the term that I used with them, workflow, right? It improves the workflow. It 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 puts everything of the workflow for the most part within R as opposed to all of these other different programs that you're moving back and forth from that can introduce that user error. Right. And and that's where like the writing up APA results, like that's the user error. The package reduces that user error.
1: Mm-hmm. Totally. Actually um talked with a couple of publishers about writing a book called r without statistics which would focus on all the things you can do with r aside from statistical analysis because i think that's sort of underappreciated at least once you use r you you appreciate you if you understand it but especially among those who don't already use r just coming to understand all of those workflow things that you can do is 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 huge
0: Well, I think think that's one of the biggest barriers to getting started too, right? Like, okay, Mm -hmm. I I know how to do a t-test. How can I just do this in R? Well, there's steps before you can just run your t-test, right? You have to import your data. You might have to clean your data. Right. You have to know how to find and access and manipulate your data. And again, that's where the tidyverse comes in. But, you know, there's there's a lot of steps to getting people to that point of, okay, just run t underscore test function. There we go.
1: Right, definitely. Well, that's actually a good point. Um, if you're okay with it, maybe I'll, I'll ask you a few questions about the course that, that you've been working on. So you're making a course, Inferential Stats with R for the R for the rest this website. And I'm curious, you talked a bit a few minutes ago about some differences between SPSS and R. But I'm curious if there are other things that, you know, come up for you when doing Inferential Stats with R that are different than the way you've approached it with other tools.
0: I think one of the big things is that most of the R functions that I use to do my inferential statistics are the, the default arguments are ones that I agree with, whereas with SPSS, there are defaults that I do not agree with. So for instance, one of the big problems in people doing exploratory factor analysis is that the default in SPSS actually has people doing a principal components analysis, a PCA. And a lot of people think erroneously that a PCA is an EFA. And I know I'm getting a little jargony right here, but just Mm -hmm. just to say that like the default in SPSS for an exploratory factor analysis is not even to do an exploratory factor analysis. It's a completely different method Mm. um, and different interpretation. Um, and so people erroneously just stick with the defaults, report them. And it's like, well, you didn't think critically about what you just did. And I think R in the way that um, the many of the defaults are set up, but also what it forces you to set as arguments helps people to think a little bit more critically about what are they doing and why.
1: Huh? That's interesting. You know, I actually had that same experience um, with data visualization where learning to do data visualization in R, there's a whole kind of um, theory behind the main visualization package, which is called ggplot. Um, the theory is called the grammar of graphics, which is the gg in ggplot. And basically, I ended up having to like think more deeply about like why I was visualizing things in a certain way, and you know what I was choosing to represent this or that, in ways I hadn't with Excel. Because with Excel, it was like, well, I just like choose a graph type and then like you know change some colors, add some text. I didn't. I never really thought about it more deeply. And it sounds like what you're saying is with R in inferential stats, like it's really forcing you to think through not just the mechanics of how you do your analysis, but also like why you're doing it. Um, to to enable you to think more deeply about the results that you get in the end. Are there any particularities? I, I guess you just mentioned one, actually, in terms of inferential stats to keep in mind when you're using R to do inferential statistical work.
0: Oh, yeah, there's a couple. Um, w- well, for one, I think most people, and <laughs> when we were creating the course, um, I was too. Default to the base R statistics package. So it's just stats in R. It's, it comes with your R installation. So I think that's why a lot of people use it, but it's not tidyverse friendly. So that whole, we had to add in like data equals dot um, when you're using right. within the tidyverse, that, you know, that was a little quirk that realized, oh, there's another... Like another package, our statics, that works a lot better. So that, that was a little quirk, you know, that until we found something that was more tidyverse friendly. Another little one that I, I appreciate though, because again, it goes back to the defaults thing. So in SPSS, for one, um, when you do an independent t test, it will give you two lines of, of output one for the, um, the variances are assumed to be equal, and one for the variances are not assumed to be equal. R will automatically assume that your variances are not equal. You have to specify above that, like, like the default is it's set to false. If you want to set it to true, then you have to specify that. And, you know, based on what I know from like taking courses with Daniel Lockins, who has a great uh, MOOC on um, improving, your, uh, improving your statistical inference, I think is what it's called. Like we should just be assuming that they're not equal always. Because if they are equal, and we assume that they're not, we're going to get pretty much the same exact results. Otherwise, so this is, goes back to the defaults, right? That, so. But a lot of people, when they're first doing it, they're like, "Oh, why does my degrees of freedom look a little funky right here?" Because there's decibels. It's like because you're using a different, it, you're using the Welch's t-test, not the the Student's t-test.
1: Interesting. Is there anything else you want to say in terms of workflow? You feel like you sort of talked about that with the APA.
0: Yeah, so I think one nice thing is when you start pairing R with things like per for mapping and stuff, um, not uh, different type of mapping, right, not like geospatial mapping, per functions and stuff like that, and the way R works is that oftentimes you can run with one or two lines of code a lot of different statistics simultaneously, whereas in SPSS, like, if you want to run multiple linear regressions, you're going to have to run them one at a time. Unless mm. they're building off of one another, but, like, so if you have different, like, blocks in SPSS, but if you have different outcomes, you're going to have to run them one at a time. And you can just copy-paste your syntax and replace the the dependent variable, sure. you know, for each one, but this one, we can specify it and then pipe in the outcome variable each time and get it all together which i just find again that just it just saves me time make sure that everything is exactly the same like reduces that user error so i I appreciate how if i'm doing a lot at once i can put it all together and then put it all into a nice pretty table at the end too which then i can pop into my my report when i'm done
1: Mm -hmm. cool or even if you're doing it in our markdown just produce your report
0: and export that right yeah well and I guess I could plug a little bit like uh, the I think it's called Papaja I, at least that's how I pronounce it um, it's uh-huh. one of my favorite packages now for um, so Papaja stands for preparing APA journal articles and I my last article that will hopefully eventually come out it's been it's been on hold for a while for a variety of reasons but hopefully coming out soon was written entirely in R I did the oh, entire cool. manuscript, citations and all, tables and everything, all the inline, like chi square and t test results, all of that was in R. So, yeah, I did have to just uh, knit the dark document and then send it in. I, didn't, I couldn't figure out some of the formatting, so I'd have to knit to a Word and then fix things because it wouldn't let me, the journal wouldn't let me submit as a PDF. And mm. if I just knit to a PDF, it would have looked a lot better. So I had to word fix things and format things a little bit and then send it in, but that's so much easier.
1: Right. Right. I mean, I always tell people like uh, using our Markdown to, you know, do all your work in one place in R gets you at least 90% of the way there, which is huge.
0: Yeah. I still need to figure out how to like, use styles. I know I know you can like associate a style with the output so then it just automatically applies that style. I haven't figured that one out, but it's not also that big of a deal. Like I don't I don't I'm not usually right. doing that. And if I'm doing that level of formatting and stuff, I'm usually starting in Word and it's usually text heavy in the first place. In which case I probably don't want to be using R in the first place.
1: Yeah. I just shared with you, feel free to put it in the episode notes if you want a blog post I wrote about how to change the styles in your if you're exporting to word so you can have it follow, you know, your organization style guide or whatever you want.
0: Yeah, I I mean, you've done this like four times where if we're talking about something that's like I wrote a blog post about this. And I, <laughs> I that's one thing I really appreciate about your website is, is it seems like you've done a really good job of of knowing what people need to know and then writing a blog post about it.
1: Well, The advantage I have is I talk to a lot of people. And so I just kind of keep like a mental tally. Well, I keep a mental tally and I have um, a list in Notion, which is my kind of note-taking tool of choice at the moment. And whenever I get, you know, hear things multiple times, I just add them there and then put, you know, eventually, um, I mean, my list is like 50 long at this point. Eventually I, I decide to do a blog post on one of them and, yeah, I think just listening to what people ask me is such, uh, I feel really fortunate that I have an audience that like shares with me um, what they're struggling with because it it enables me to make content that's going to be useful to people.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I'm curious how, because you do, you have a big following and I know you have what you have a lot of thousand of followers on Twitter or something like that now, right?
1: Um, the R for the rest of us account has almost 6,000 followers. Yeah. And
0: what do you think, like, how, what do you attribute to that huge amount of followers? I I attribute that to being a huge amount, but what do you think?
1: Yeah, I'd say two things. One, I mean, I've tried to make like my person, my persona on the internet, just like friendly person who wants to help you learn R if you want to, if you don't want to, that's cool too. And so basically on the art for the rest of his account, all I do pretty much is post resources for people. So I have it set up. I use a tool called Buffer and uh, every day at 9 a.m. Pacific and at 12 Pacific, a new tweet goes out with some kind of you know, resource usually that someone else has tweeted. I'll, I retweet people a lot. Yeah, I think people just find that valuable. And then the other thing I think is just being consistent, you know, like I mentioned, I, it goes out nine and 12 uh, every day or every weekday. I've done that for the last, I don't even know, years, two years, uh, maybe a year and a half. So, you know, I don't, I never, well, I think like one or two tweets got me, you know, a few hundred followers, but like, it's never been like any kind of huge jump. It's just like slow and steady. And I think because I've seen it as like a main way that I market, it's worth it to me. Like I have time booked every Friday um, in the afternoon where I go through and and populate all the tweets for the next week if I don't already have some there. Um, Mm. So that's my main uh, advice. It's a little, I mean, it feels a little cold in that way, but you know, like I said, I try and be just friendly person on the internet. And even if the mechanics of it are a little bit cold, the materials that I post and the kind of the personality I try and have, I hope, is is a little less than cold and a little bit more friendly.
0: Well, I feel like you've told me that before that you've buffered your tweets before, and I I think I keep forgetting because I don't I, it doesn't come out through your Twitter account, um, or at least I I feel like oh I know David like oh this is a cool tweet thanks David you know and um, as you're going through and I don't it doesn't feel cold to me, but maybe it's because I know you a little bit better, but I don't get that sense.
1: Well, the other thing is I try and write in my own voice. I never, I always use the um, first person singular. I always say, I, I never say we for my business um, because it, well, it's basically just me. I work with obviously like with you making a course and I have um, Thomas, a, a contractor who I work with on consulting projects, but I it I to be an individual because I think people are also more likely to respond to an individual than, you know, a, just a boring kind of corporate entity so that's another thing that I've tried to do even though you know I mean I have my own Twitter account like just my personal one which is separate from the business account but like I said even from the business account I want people to know that it's literally just me because I think that resonates more with people.
0: No that makes sense I'm always a little hesitant to follow and Respond to accounts that are from organizations because I don't quite know who's behind them or who's running yeah. the account. And so, when I've had people like like companies DM me and they're like, by the way, this is so and so from the company, it's like, oh, that's cool. I had no idea who's running this account. It's nice to know who's you this whole time. Right. I had no idea, though.
1: Yep. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know, the other thing I've thought about doing, I need to work on it's on my to do list. I want to. Ironically, I've done a bad job of marketing with the Twitter account. Maybe that's why it's successful. Um, I don't. I don't actually do a ton of like talking about you know like my courses or like I've done a little bit of tweeting about your course, but I need to do more of that. And so I'm actually writing an R package that will automate that tweeting. So like again, it well it'll probably be like twice a week. It'll post some like promotional content. And, you know, twice a week it'll post like, like retweet, like repost uh, a blog post that I've written or something like that. Yeah. So that's another application of R um, that I hadn't known about, but you can totally do. Uh, You can tweet from R.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So I think we're getting into conversation that for people who are doing like independent consulting, who might be interested in you know maybe getting their own courses get like getting started who are blogging who have their own websites or something like a lot of this conversation is relevant to that um and i have questions for you and i know at the beginning we uh, before we started recording we were talking about uh, mailing lists and all this stuff and i'm curious uh and you did you did also talk about buffer in your twitter uh yeah for running your twitter and notion for capturing ideas are there any other things that you use in your work like your your Workflow that helps you with your consulting, independent consulting side of business.
1: Uh, like any other tools.
0: Tools, processes, thoughts.
1: Yeah, um, I used to do us, which you recommended to me. Yeah. Um, it's a good. I think for it, it might not. Well, they do have a business um, version as well for for single individuals. I have I've used like every to do application out there, and this is definitely the one that I have most. I found most valuable um they well, so have boards now really which
0: i'm so happy about
1: yeah yeah so that's really good what else oh i just signed up for this service called savvy cow Cal, which is like uh, calendly calendly however you pronounce calendly? that one i
0: don't know
1: calendly yeah that's probably how you more likely how you pronounce it <laughs> um Uh, there's some things I don't like about Calendly specifically with Savvy it allows the person you're scheduling a meeting with to overlay their calendar on top of your calendar. So you don't have to like have them like flip back and forth all the time. Um, So I've started using that actually you haven't in our correspondence you haven't seen it because I literally started using it earlier this week.
0: Oh nice.
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah I use I, I mean I do data visualization I actually use Figma a lot which is like a of it as like Microsoft Paint on steroids. Um, oh. I use that for like prototyping like draw, like base I'll start by drawing with my hand and then use that for drawing. Um,
0: you have like, a Mac, don't you?
1: Yeah, Is it's available. Just a Ma- um, it's available. It's actually available in the browser. You can oh, use it even in the better. browser. Yeah. Yeah, those are I think the main things. I mean, there's just boring like accounting stuff. Like I use QuickBooks. Um, <laughs> Yeah, those are the, the I'd say the well, main Actually, kind of at one
0: point you used Bonsai. So how'd you get from Bonsai <laughs> away from that? Because you got me into Bonsai as well when I was doing more independent consulting.
1: <laughs> You've probably realized that I am always looking for like new tools. Um,
0: I think this so, is so, why we're friends because I'm like always the same way. Yeah, I'm looking for new things.
1: <laughs> totally. So I don't remember now what the limitation was, but there was something with Bonsai that wasn't working as I kind of scaled my business up oh you know what it, wait bonsai i don't i don't remember I think it's the it's number so long of,
0: uh, invoices you could send out in a year or something
1: something like that but i was on a paid account um oh. i don't even remember to be honest mm. um anyway i switched to FreshBooks, and then but then i had to get an actual accountant and he was like you need to use quickbooks <laughs> and yeah quickbooks is fine so, yeah, that I don't know. That's how I, I just kind of cycled through them until... And I've stuck with... I mean, I've been with QuickBooks for a couple of years now because that's how long I've been working with my accountant. That is kind of the industry standard.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then one more thing that I'm curious about, because so... We've been running eval jobs now, evaluationjobs.org. We're still working on getting it up and running because I think the update to what WordPress 3.5 or something like that, whatever the latest big update was, kind of broke things a little bit. Mm. So we've been trying to figure that out. That's been fun. Like our Google Maps API is just not working. Who knows mm. why? But like going into the back end of evaluationjobs.org, seeing a little bit of the back end of R for the rest of us in terms of like the course and stuff like that. Like you clearly know a lot about WordPress and I'm curious, like how'd you get into learning this and how can I learn more? Because I realize I know <laughs> nothing about WordPress from now seeing what you've done with it.
1: Yeah, let's see, WordPress. Um, I have used WordPress. since so I was in high school, which was in the mid, to late 90s so i've i've just been around it for a while yeah um the great thing with wordpress i mean it's actually similar to r in that it's it's open source so people make in r they're called packages in wordpress they're called plugins it's basically you know just bits of software that do specific things so i i don't even know i mean i'm just kind of followed that world i'm in a slack group for people who use wordpress um, which i don't follow as much now because it's not as central to what i do i used to do i used to actually do wordpress like website design work yeah i don't even i mean i'm gonna actually just like look now at like what the plugins are
0: do you have a standard set that you use like across all your websites or something
1: Not necessarily, because it really just depends what, you know, each project does. And I I don't have, like, I used to have a lot of websites, you know, like I turned over evaluation jobs to you and friends. I used to have too many websites, and it was just a pain to manage them all. So I've kind of scaled that back. I mean, the one thing I'll say, if you're doing any selling with wordpress woocommerce it makes it really easy and that's what i use to sell my courses yeah i don't know i mean like i have a an seo search engine optimization plugin to help you know google understand what's going on with my site bunch of different woocommerce things uh, some convert kit which is like mailchimp that it's the version of that that i use to kind of sync my WordPress site with um, my mailing list. I don't know how I have found out about these. I've just kind of been around and found them.
0: That makes sense. I'm curious, would maybe, and maybe you don't know the answer to this because you don't know the answer to the other question, but would you recommend people who are interested in starting their own website? Like, okay, I've got a website or well, maybe not use me as an example because I know a little bit about WordPress, but if anybody knows nothing about WordPress, would you recommend they use that or something more user friendly? Like what is, what is it? Like square, something square?
1: Squarespace. Yeah. Um, I would actually recommend Squarespace at this point. Like having done uh a decent amount of website design work and then turning it over to clients and seeing them struggle at times. Like us. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I think Squarespace Squarespace is limited, you know, in terms of, I mean, it's pretty robust from what I understand. And I'll caveat this by saying I've never actually used Squarespace. But, you know, there are things you can do. WordPress gives you a lot more flexibility because it's open source, because there are tons of plugins. um, Things that you couldn't necessarily do with Squarespace But most of that stuff, if someone is, you know, if the WordPress stuff is a bit scary, they're probably not going to end up doing those complicated things anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, as an example, like with my courses, I have it set up so that there's one price for folks in rich countries and then a separate price for those courses for folks in other parts of the world. And I don't know how to like code that, but I you know, just use a plugin that allows you to do variable pricing based on the location of the visitor to your website. And, you know, it's that type of flexibility that I have using WordPress that I don't imagine you could do on something like Squarespace. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's a very particular need that most people aren't going to have. So yeah, I would probably recommend Squarespace or something like that.
0: Cool. Okay so a minor logistical thing just cuz I'm curious do you recommend re- like updating plugins in wordpress regularly as 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 updates come out
1: yeah um, okay. it, i used to it used to be scarier updating plugins used to break things more in wordpress it's less so now and actually the newest version of wordpress enables auto updates you can just say i want these plugins to auto update whenever there is oh, yeah. a new update oh yeah i've been update. seeing that yeah yeah, I do recommend it because the biggest security risk running WordPress, which is also like a downside to WordPress, you, have, you, I've, I've just, you get your sites hacked sometimes. Uh, mm. It doesn't happen a lot, but it does sometimes happen. You'd be like, why, why does anyone care about, like I run uh, the Oregon Program Evaluators Network website. That got hacked. It's like, why would anybody okay. care about that? But I don't know. People do. They want to just take it over so they can like send out spam from your website or something like that.
0: Well, don't they also want you to then pay to get it back like hold it yeah
1: hostage? yeah th- this at least wasn't that type of situation. Mm. I-, I don't even know what it, what <laughs> the what was going on with the hacking but so f- anyway for that reason I would definitely recommend keeping things uh, up to date.
0: Thank you I appreciate that yeah so I want to end by you know talking about the course a little bit but do you have any other things that you want to talk about in terms of our getting, you know, running websites, independent consulting?
1: Well, maybe we'll talk about this, but I guess the other big kind of like plugin that I use with WordPress is LearnDash, which is the plugin that kind of manages the course content. And, you know, that's definitely an option for folks. Like you mentioned before, you know, maybe someone has a blog has a website and they're thinking about putting together a course. If you do want to build it on WordPress, I think LearnDash is the best. I looked into them all when I started doing this and it seemed like the best that said kind of similarly if learn dash is fairly involved so for a lot of people i think the best approach is to do something like teachable which is mm-hmm. like an all all-in-one built-in platform for developing your own course that's actually what ann emery uses right. and a lot of people use it because i'm a bit more technical and have experience with wordpress i just wanted to do it on my own site but yeah for most people if you're thinking about doing it i would look for something like teachable to do it
0: yeah Thanks. Yeah, that's helpful because uh, I was just planning on using Teachable. It's nice to know that that's there and I I got to see a bit of that back, that back end, um, you know, helping develop the the course for the inferential statistics course. But uh, I think this is just a basic plug for everybody listening just to think about the things, you know, obviously these this, the episodes this month have been very focused on, um, you know, independent teaching um through professional development courses uh kind of work on your own pace type courses both from ann and from david so thinking like how you could start your own course particularly now that we're in covid times and you may or may not have more or less time on your hands but i mean i don't know about you but a lot of people i know are feeling a little bit more um worried about financial places right now um you know i i the institution I'm at is going through budget cuts. I'm the most recent hire. I I don't think I'm going to get fired, but you never know. Um, So thinking about things like this that can be very in perpetuity, still making you money without doing any additional work is is a nice, uh, nice to know it's there.
1: Yeah. And the one thing I'll say on that is I think aside from any tools, I think the most important thing, if you're starting out and thinking about trying to build something is to find a niche it's counterintuitive because you think like oh i want to you know offer a course that's useful for as many people as possible the problem is if your niche is too broad um, then it doesn't really resonate like as an example i used to try to get people to hire me to build interactive visualizations which is you know pretty broad i mean i, I focus on trying to get people in evaluation to do that more, as opposed to just kind of like static, typically PDF based reporting, it didn't really resonate enough. And I think looking back, it was a little bit too broad. Um, Whereas now, you know, my business is very focused. Um, It's like, I just do R. people have asked me like, Oh, are you going to expand to like, Python, or I don't know, some other language, I'm like, the business is called R for the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, But that's, that's actually, I think, like, why it's resonated, more is it's like I'm focused both on R as well as not just R, like R for a particular type of person. And I think of it specifically as like R for people who are who want to learn R but are afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that like if you're just hearing that, you might be like, that's like a really narrow niche. Like, are there really that many people? And the, and the answer is yes. Like there are, it's a big world out there. And it's much better to have um, you know a smaller niche that you're gonna really resonate with as opposed to trying to go too broad um, and just having your, your work fall flat.
0: Yeah, and I hopefully the inferential stats course is gonna be like that as well. I, I definitely teach that way as well. I try to make this as less painful as possible, right? I, I find stats fun, um, but I don't want it to be this chore for people to learn how to do it and obviously i'm not teaching how to do stats i'm just teaching how to do it in r but hopefully people it resonates with them that it's like takes that burden off of them of okay how do i do a t-test in r i know everything else but how do i do a t-test in r what do i do
1: Yep. well i mean i'll say by the the signups that we've gotten uh, in the you know week or so since I sent out the email announcing it, it's it's done really well. And I think it is you know, resonating with people. And I think the thing I, I like about the course is like exactly what you just said, that you're not, tr- you, we have a, like when we were developing it, we came up with a very specific persona of right. like who would want to take it. And like you said, you know, you're not trying to teach people stats. Like if you need to learn the stats, like, cool, there's some great resources out there. Go do that when you're ready to come back um, and, or if you already know the stats and like you're using SPSS and you want to transition to R, this is the course that will help you to do that. And that's a very, that that's, that's pretty niche, but I think that's why it's resonating with people.
0: Right. Well, and I think it's also a good build off of some of your more foundational courses as well, right? Because I reference the tidyverse a lot. And so people are going to have to know how to use the tidyverse at least a little bit. Um, right. They're going to have to have a background and, you know, feel familiar enough with R. They could probably get in and do everything without much of an understanding of R, but it's going to help a lot if they know more about R, R, Studio, and the Tidyverse first.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think the great thing is, like, all you need is that, like, basic kind of fundamental understanding, and from there, like, your course will will help people do, you know, all the kind of, like, fundamental inferential statistical work that they need to do and the other thing I'll say I like about the course is like you know there's a lot of I follow the art community online obviously I'm part of it and you know the people will be talking about like machine learning this and all these like really complicated things and my understanding is that most people's work looks nothing like that particularly for folks in evaluation you know like people want to do a t-test or (laughs) an ANOVA, you know, like something pretty, pretty basic in the end. Um, And there are, it's funny because I think there are more resources at that like high end, like how to do machine learning with R than there are for people just wanting kind of like the fundamentals of doing inferential statistics in R. So I think your course is nicely positioned to, to offer that, that fundamental learning to people who want that
0: yeah well it's been fun putting it together with you I've, I've it's been nice to get a little sense of how you run your courses and and the processes you use and your you know your thought the way you think about it and what how you approach the videos I you know just t- talking about how you record videos and and then edit them was really helpful for me especially now that I'm doing a lot of that on my own for my own you know courses that I teach here at Stout so that was it was been it's been nice
1: Good. Yeah, no, it was fun working together. Um, and the cool thing is it, it's totally f- like all the stuff we use to record um, right. was free. There are you know, free tools to record yourself. We use one called Streamlabs, which is designed for people who stream online, but you can also just hit record on it and record your videos. And, you know, especially in this this era when everyone's at home, like you can actually do a lot uh, with very little.
0: Yeah, definitely. So wrapping up a little bit, I know, so you're a, you're a little evaluation adjacent, but I usually end the the podcast by talking about what is something in evaluation that's giving you life right now?
1: Boy, I should have come up with an answer for this.
0: (laughs) I did, I did prepare you ahead of time with this question.
1: I know, I did a bad (laughs) job.
0: (laughs) Well, okay, let's, let's broaden it out a little bit. Like what, in R, what, what gets you excited? What's coming, like what, what's giving you life that's happening in R, in the R community?
1: Gosh, I did a bad job. Uh, <laughs> I think we're both fact.
0: very tired today.
1: I'm, this week has been yeah. insane. Um, so I will say that one, I don't know if this is right now, but one of the things that's that has historically and still gives me life about the art community is how open and welcoming it is. And you can post if you want in the show notes of, article that I wrote about kind of the history of the art community and how it came to be so welcoming but you know I love like someone the other day posted that she was learning art but she was really scared and someone tagged the art for the rest of us account and you know was like hey David like he has materials he can help you and I just love seeing you know how willing to help people are. So like I responded and said, you know, if you have any questions, like I gave her my email, like just write me. That's one thing within R that I've always really valued. And I think it's, you know, beyond just the tool itself, it's one of the reasons that I've uh, really enjoyed working with R.
0: Yeah, I think I think part of the nature of it being open source, both in terms of the the you know the software and the packages, is that people are doing this because they love it, you know. And so, one of one of my packages that's a little bit more way more niche, Levon, that I use my, again for my structural equation modeling stuff, um, I've been doing some really crazy stuff with it, and I had so many questions, and the people who run the Google group for that package are just so incredibly generous Hmm. with their time and will answer everybody's questions, even mine, where they're like, oh, there's a lot to unpack here. I'm like, oh gosh, sorry. (laughs) You know? Um, So it just, it is very nice how people are generous with their time and energy um, to help people get through this stuff.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, that's been really great for me too. And it's also especially for people starting out, like it's really nice to know that you're not going to be kind of laughed at for asking quote unquote beginner questions.
0: Mm-hmm, exactly. Well, David, it's been lovely to have you on the podcast. If somebody wants to get in contact with you, how can they best find you?
1: Yeah, I'm very active on Twitter. i probably too active. <laughs> um, so my personal account is DGKies, K-E-Y-E-S, and the R for the rest of this account is r for the rest unfortunately someone has r for the rest of us and seriously yes and <laughs> sorry posted like uh, like five years ago and hasn't posted since then i've tried to reach out to the guy i've tried to like tell twitter Aww. to give me an account they won't give it to me <laughs> um anyway um so that or email works really well too that's uh, david at r of us.com. awesome
0: well thank you so much david
1: yeah. Thanks for having me, Dana. And if folks have our questions, just like I said before, I'm always happy to uh, answer them.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please visit the podcast website at EvaluLand.Fireside.fm, where you can subscribe to get notified of new episodes and contact us with your questions, comments, or suggestions. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, this has been EvaluLand.